Hey folks, Andy Patton here. The Zags secured another easy victory on Thursday against the Pacific Tigers behind a season-high 20 points from guard Rasir Bolton. We're going to recap that game, preview the big game against St. Mary's on Saturday, and talk about the NBA trade deadline and how it impacted our Zags, all right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Don't go away. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, recovering from COVID and here to take you through another season of Gonzaga Hoops. Thank you to all of you who have reached out, who have asked about me, my wife, my family, how we are doing health-wise. We are feeling better, still a little bit challenging to record a podcast with a cough the way that I have had the last few days, but I'm happy to be back behind the mat mic. Just audio today, no video, hard to record all the way straight through for that amount of time, so taking a little bit of breaks as I'm still recovering, but excited to get a chance here to talk about this Gonzaga vs. Pacific game on Thursday. Uh, the Zags won 89-51, to another kind of ho-hum blowout type game. I think it's notable and wasn't discussed enough how good Gonzaga looked defensively on Thursday. We know Pacific is not a great offensive team. Yes, they played well against USC. Yes, they beat BYU. This isn't a bad team. This is a growing, developing team. I think Leonard Perry is a great coach to help lead this team back through uh, potentially a rebirth uh, in the in the WCC. Obviously, David Sotomayor did some great stuff with this program. Leonard Perry, assistant coach under him for a long time. I think they're going in the right direction. I think we saw that against USC. We saw that against BYU, but they're very small. They're very undersized, and Gonzaga just overwhelmed them. There was a, I believe it was a full over eight-minute stretch to begin the second half where Pacific did not score a field goal. I think they had six points all on free throws. It was a remarkable defensive performance, and I think we need to lead with that. Discuss that first. There were some great offensive performances. It's much easier to look at a box score and see who shot the ball well and think that's the MVP, but really the biggest story of this game for me was excellent team defense from the Zags. Pacific could not get open looks under the basket, which is not a huge surprise considering their size disadvantage, but they could not hit an outside shot to save their lives. Gonzaga was overwhelming on both ends of the floor. And then, of course, the MVP MVP, if we are talking about statistics and numbers, it's easy to talk about Chet Holmgren, Drew Timmy. We're going to talk about those two guys. They both had great games, but this was the Rasir Bolton game. Grad transfer guard from Iowa State, of course, has had a very excellent season for Gonzaga all year long. It's not new that he's having a good game. I kind of I posed on Twitter the conversation of, is this the best game Bolton has had in a Gonzaga uniform? And a lot of the kind of commentary was, well, he's had a lot of great games. Like, this is kind of par for the course for him, which I agree with. This is his first time hitting 20, his first time in a Gonzaga uniform dropping 20 points. I think it's hard to not consider this the best game for him. He's a well-rounded player, don't get me wrong. But his primary contribution to this team is how many points he puts up on the board. And this is the most he's done in in the entire season for Gonzaga. 20 points, 8 of 11 shooting. That is remarkably consistent. Everybody on Gonzaga's team seems to be hyper-efficient scoring the basketball. That's what has made this team so ridiculously 
deadly all year long. Not just Chet shooting absorbently high field goal percentages or Drew Timmy or even some of the other guards, but guys like Bolton who you would expect to be good scorers but maybe not highly efficient scorers and he has taken on a reduced role he's a lower volume scorer than he was at Penn State than he was at Iowa State but he has upped his efficiency significantly there's a reason we see so many of these Ryan Woolridge comparisons for Bolton they don't play the same role in terms of being the primary ball handler that's Bolton was the primary ball handler at Iowa State he came here and is now an off-ball guard whereas Woolridge was the primary ball handler at North Texas came to Gonzaga was also the primary ball handler, but Bolton has excelled in this role. He's great defensively. He's lethal out in transition. One of, if not the fastest, quickest guard in Gonzaga history. And here he goes out against Pacific, 8 of 11 from the field, 4 of 6 from downtown. The biggest question for Bolton coming into this year was how is he going to look beyond the arc? Again, we'll go back to the Woolridge comparison. Woolridge was a 32% three-point shooter in four years with the Mean Green in North Texas. Then his first and only year at Gonzaga, he was up over 42%. 10% increase as a three-point shooter. It's not super hard to see why going from an offense where the entire defense focuses on you to being the fourth or fifth option offensively allows you to get more open looks. He thrived in that regard. Bolton, very similar story. Even at a Power 5 school like Iowa State, he was the dude. He was the main guy. He was getting swarmed defensively. Now he has more room to operate, and you can see how he succeeds. He's not just a three-point shooter, though. He's not even just a scorer. Four boards, three assists, and one steal added on. He played 24 minutes. 20 points, four boards, three assists, one steal is a great line. And in 30 minutes, that would be a great line. But he did it in 24. That is very, very impressive. And again, four four three-pointers is huge, but he also had buckets around the rim. He drove to the basket, had a nice finger roll, got out in transition, scored that way. A highly efficient, highly productive score. He does not need the ball constantly in his hands to drop 15, 18, 20 points per game like he did here. A really remarkable performance from Bolton. And I, I would feel remiss if we didn't mention that, didn't acknowledge how good of a game he did. Of course, Chet Holmgren did Chet things, 14 points, six boards, two blocks, and an assist. Five for seven from the field. It's always good when Chet had half as many field goal attempts as he had points. That's usually the ideal way to look at his scoring. If he took seven shots and had 14 points, that's really freaking good. I wasn't quite as otherworldly as he has been in the other games uh, the last few weeks. Uh, But again, 14 and six on five of seven shooting, two for four from three. Really, really good. Did not miss a two-pointer again. And then Drew Timmy, double-double for Drew, 13 points, 10 boards. He's still not quite the highly productive player that we have seen from him last season and even earlier this season. He was 6-for-11 from the field, which, to be clear, is far from bad. 6-for-11 from the field is over 50% shooting. We can't really criticize that too much. He missed a three in this game, a three that I thought was a good shot for him to take. He just didn't knock it down. If you take that out, that's 6 for 10. 6 for 10, that's 60%. That's pretty good. Like It's it's, it's unfair of us to criticize Drew Timmy for shooting 60% from the field because that is remarkably good and would be elite for every other player in the country. But still, we're seeing Drew a little bit uncomfortable, it looks. I think he's getting better. I think he's just having to find out what his role is. Now that Chet Holmgren has this larger piece of the pie offensively, I'm not worried about him. He did have three turnovers in this game. 
I remember I remember them distinctly. None of them were atrocious. One of them was just a bad pass, a miscommunication with a teammate, but it happens. He had three assists. He had two blocks. He still had a nice game. I'm, I'm not worried about Drew Timmy long-term. I don't think people should be worried about Drew Timmy long-term. I understand he's not putting up 20 points, nine rebounds like he was earlier in the year, but I bet he's going to get back to that. Sean Farnham said on this podcast earlier last week, he said, Drew Timmy's going to have more 30-point games. He's going to do it again. I trust Sean Farnham. I believe that as well. I think we're going to see some big games for him coming up. And finally, the last point on this game before we transition and talk about St. Mary's, the Zag shot it really well from beyond the arc. Shocker. That has been something they have been doing really well lately. 11 for 28 from beyond the arc in this game. 28 three-point attempts is a lot. 11 knocked them down 39%, just under 40%. Obviously, fantastic three-point shooting. This is with Andrew Nemphart having an abnormally poor game shooting the Rock. He was one for eight from three. That means the rest of the team was a cool 10 for 20. That's pretty good. 50%, as it turns out, is going to get it done most of the time. I'm not worried about Andrew Nembhardt. He's a streaky three-point shooter. He kind of always has been. I thought they were good shots. The only time I'll worry about Nembhardt or really anybody in this offense is if they're taking bad shots. Nembhardt, I think, for the most part, was running the pick and roll. The defense was going under the screens. He had wide open threes. He was taking them. He just wasn't knocking them down. It just wasn't his night. Shooting the rock. He still had nine points. He still had three assists. Still a good game from him. Just a poor shooting night. But when the rest of the team's going to shoot 50% from three, obviously we talked about Bolton, four of six. Chet was two for four. Strother was two for five. Hunter Salas hit a three, which we always love to see. He got the he got the crowd tacos. He was the one who hit that 10th three. Ben Gregg hit one as well. Really nice to see this team just really knocking down their outside shots in a way that makes them virtually impossible to defend. They're already a nightmare with the with the post presence they have of Drew Timmy, of Chet Holmgren, of Anton Watson, and what he's been doing off the bench. To factor in a team that's pretty consistently shooting 42, 43, 45% from three is just makes them just an absolute menace. All right, Pacific game over and done. Let's talk about the St. Mary's game coming up on Saturday. We're going to preview that ahead of that Really fun game. Before we do that, though, let's talk about Bet Online. There might be less football being played, but BetOnline.net has way more stuff to bet on this playoff season. From scores, totals, and player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, BetOnline is the number one spot for all things NFL betting in 2022. And it's not just football. BetOnline.net's basketball, hockey, boxing, and UFC odds are the best in the business. From sports right down to your favorite Vegas casino games, BetOnline is your number one online wagering destination. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all of your favorite sports and play your favorite games. That's BetOnline, where the game starts. All right, it is Super Week brought to you by Get Upside, and there is no better place to get coverage of the big game than the Locked On NFL podcast. Locked On Bengals and Locked On Rams are in L.A. all week covering the big game. It is segment two. We are done talking about the Gonzaga vs. Pacific game on Thursday, transitioning to cover the epic showdown between ranked number 22 in the country, St. Mary's Gales, and of course the number two ranked Gonzaga Bulldogs by Monday, the Zags will almost certainly be the number one team in the country. And St. Mary's, even if they pull off this win, well, if they pull off this win, they'll probably remain ranked. But right now, they are on the almost certainly going to not be ranked after losing to Santa Clara 
earlier this week and likely suffering a loss against the Zags on Saturday. Don't want to jinx anything, but Gonzaga is rolling right now. But this is a very good St. Mary's squad, and I'm excited to get a chance to really talk about them because on one hand, they're sort of the same. Randy Bennett's been there for a long time. This team has had a tried and true recipe that has led them to a monumental amount of success. They have not had the NCAA tournament success that Gonzaga has, and that has kind of clouded their reputation in part because they are a part of the WCC and have had that challenge of not actually winning the conference very often, but they are still a very good team. They have a really high winning record uh, over the last 10 years under Coach Bennett, and this year they are cruising 20-5 and on the season. They really don't have any bad losses. Uh, They lost to Wisconsin earlier in the year, a team that was not ranked at the time, but has proven to be a very good squad. They lost to San Diego State and Colorado State, two Mountain West schools that are, they're not great losses. Colorado State was ranked at the time of the loss and has been ranked for a huge chunk of the season. San Diego State upset Colorado State, but has kind of floated right around the edge of being an actual NCAA tournament team. Um, Meanwhile, they also have losses to BYU and Santa Clara. The BYU loss obviously is continuing to look worse and worse for St. Mary's, but at the time, BYU was a pretty good team. They were top 25 in Ken Palm, and I believe even in net rating when they beat St. Mary's, Uh, but they have really fallen off a cliff the last few weeks under Coach Mark Pope. And then Santa Clara is far and away the best team in the WCC that's not going to make the NCAA tournament or not in the conversation to make the NCAA tournament. They are right behind, of course, Gonzaga, St. Mary's, BYU, and San Francisco. But this Santa Clara team is very, very good. Had they not suffered injuries to Yusuf Vrankic earlier in the year, there's a pretty good chance they would be right in that conversation for the NCAA tournament as well. So five loss St. Mary's team without a lot of bad losses. That puts them in a good spot. Of course, they got at least two more games to play against Gonzaga, potentially a third, depending on how the WCC tournament shakes out. They also have some decent wins. They beat Oregon early in the year when Oregon was really, really struggling. Oregon has kind of rebounded and put themselves in a position to be a a potential NCAA tournament team or maybe even a likely NCAA tournament team, which will help St. Mary's. Notre Dame was a win they got earlier in the year. They beat Utah State, a solid team in the in the Mountain West who kind of struggled to start Mountain West conference play but has looked really good lately and of course they also have a victory over Santa Clara they split the series with them and perhaps their biggest victory against the Dons of San Francisco currently right now according to Ken Palm this is the 20th best team in the country so obviously Randy Bennett has this team in a really good spot they are 48th in the country in offense and 18th in the country in defense. No surprise that they are relying more on their defense. I think people who've maybe watched this team earlier in the year would be surprised to hear that they are a top 50 offensive team. They really, really struggled to put the ball through the hoop earlier in the year. Bennett has made some adjustments, changed the starting lineup a little bit, and they are getting much better at scoring. We've talked about this on this show before, but one of the frustrating things about St. Mary's and the style that they run, there's a lot of frustrating things about the style that they run and that's just kind of part of the deal with them but they have to be really efficient offensively they take very few shots they force the defense the force the offense to take very few shots and so when you are going to play a game where both sides are basically spending 30 seconds before getting a shot up and there's little transition offense you have to be really efficient in order to beat the other team St. Mary's is good at suppressing the other team's outside shooting which helps them but they're, they have to be nearly perfect. And when they had guys like Jock Landale and Omar Samhan and some of those highly efficient low post scores, it really helped them 
be you know have a lot of success have records like they have this year 20 and 5 but this season they started out really slow offensively they weren't very efficient it was costing them some games now we've started to see them really start to bring it they're better uh, in their half court sets they're finding more better offensive shots which is really helping them be successful uh they're 332nd in the country in tempo not surprising at all one of these slowest paced teams i'm always surprised they're not legitimately last it is sometimes shocking to me that there's like 25 other division one teams that play at a slower pace than randy bennett's scales because they play real slow they're holding opponents to just 33 and a half percent on three-point shots only 45 and a half percent from the field in general this is a good defensive team they're going to give Gonzaga some problems on that end of the floor. Beyond that, they have one of the few things that <laughs> they're one of the few teams in the WCC that has size. Matthias Toss is going to be an issue for the Zags. He is 6'10, he is 245 pounds, he is rock solid muscle. He is a tough, tough dude. He's averaging 12 and a half points, six and a half rebounds per game. He's a menace. In some of St. Mary's best games, he has gone off. I believe it was against USF. I could be wrong here, but I know in one of Gonzaga, or excuse me, one of St. Mary's big wins, he had 27 points and 12 rebounds. This dude is a machine. And obviously he has not gone up against a shot blocker like Chet Holmgren. Uh, he hasn't even really gone up against guys like Drew Timmy. They're, that's going to be the big matchup to watch is how Toss is able to if he's able to get generate solid offense against guys like Drew Timmy and Chet Holmgren and even Anton Watson. Dan Fotu, not as big height-wise, 6'7", 225. He's a, he's a load as well, though. He's got a lot of strength, a lot of physicality, kind of plays a small ball four role, averaging 7.5 points, 3.5 boards. They got Mitchell Saxon coming off the bench, 6'10", 230. So they got some size. One of the, you know, USF's got some size. Uh, Santa Clara actually has some size as well. BYU lost their size to injury, which has really kind of hampered their uh, their season in a lot of ways. There, there's lots of things that are going on with BYU, but that has been one of the biggest ones, but it'll be interesting to see how Gonzaga responds to a slow, plodding, methodical team that also has some size because San Francisco kind of tried to be that as well. But I think St. Mary's has kind of more perfected the art of what they like to do offensively and defensively. This team is basically the same as last year's team, which I think has helped them gel and kind of figure out what they want to figure out their identity really early in the year, which has helped lead them to such a strong record. Uh, they they got some good guards as well. I think that's that's been their weak point is inconsistency from the guards that they have. Alex Ducasse is averaging 11 points. He's shooting 41% from three. So he's going to be somebody you want to watch out for on the perimeter. And then there's Tommy Cousy. Cousy's had a very inconsistent season for St. Mary's. I think that's been a part of their kind of ups and downs, often kind of ebb and flow with how Kusi is doing. Uh, he's shooting 45% from three. We talk a lot about how Alex Barcelo or Rasir Bolton are the best three-point shooters in the conference. That uh, Keyshawn Justice from Santa Clara needs to be in that conversation. But frankly, so does Kusi. 45% from three from Tommy Kusi this season. Once again, a guy that Gonzaga is going to need to know where he is on the floor at all times or he's going to bury them with three-pointers. And again, in, a, in an offense like this, if, if he hits back-to-back threes, that's like a three-minute stretch of the game where if Gonzaga misses a bucket on the other end, like they're, it's hard to generate big leads against St. Mary's to go on those big runs, especially if they're shooting well from beyond the arc. 
I think Gonzaga wins this. I think St. Mary's is good, but I'm not quite sure they're good enough to hang with the Zags for a full 40. I've thought that before, and St. Mary's has won. They can do it. I want to be clear. I think this is a team that is capable of beating Gonzaga. I do not think that they will because Gonzaga is just cruising right now. And I think Mark Few is going to have a, a solid game plan to hang to hang with this team and to really defeat them over a full 40 minutes. But I think it's going to be a bit of a dogfight. It's going to be a bit of a rock fight. It's going to be... It's going to be ugly. Everybody who's watched Gonzaga play St. Mary's before knows that it gets ugly. And I don't think, even though Gonzaga's offense has been cruising lately, I don't think there's any reason to not expect this one to get a little ugly as well. All right. Talked about Gonzaga defeating Pacific in the first segment. Talked about the upcoming game against St. Mary's in segment two. Third segment, we're pivoting away from the current Gonzaga team. We're going to talk about the NBA trade deadline, which had a lot of action involving one of Gonzaga's most notable players in the NBA, DeMontis Sabonis, who is, of course, straight to the Sacramento Kings. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about some of the other trades that happened and how they may impact some of Gonzaga's players. Before we get there, though, let's talk about Bilt Bar. This is the time of the year that I've pretty much given up on all of my New Year's resolutions, but not this year. I'm sticking to my resolution to eat right thanks to Bilt Bar. It almost feels like it's not really a resolution because I actually enjoy eating them. Have you tried the Puffs? If you haven't, you're missing out on one of Built Bar's best-tasting bars. Puffs are the first-ever protein-infused marshmallow. They're fluffy, they're marshmallowy, they're not just a protein bar, they're a treat. And they're covered in 100% real chocolate. In fact, all Built Bars are covered in 100% real chocolate, including the Puffs. A typical candy bar can be anywhere from two to 300 calories. Most Built Bars contain 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. They have mint brownie, coconut, and coconut almond, and new for this month, white chocolate cookies and cream. They are all delicious, and new flavors are coming out all of the time. Go to Built.com and use promo code LOCKED15, and you'll get 15% off your order. That's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off your order at Built.com. All right, segment three, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zags, pivoting away from discussing Gonzaga's most recent game against Pacific and, of course, their upcoming game against St. Mary's. Instead, going to look at what happened on Tuesday's NBA trade deadline. It was a big, big, big trade deadline, I think. The trade deadline in the NBA, and really in all sports, is kind of hit and miss. Sometimes it's a dud and not a lot happens. Sometimes, for various reasons, it's a complete monstrosity this year was that situation. Tons of huge names were traded this year. Obviously, the biggest story was, of course, the Ben Simmons for James Harden mega trade between the Brooklyn Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers. However, I want to focus on how this trade deadline impacted our Zags in the NBA. As we've talked about, there are now so many Zags in the NBA that you kind of just, you know that they're going to be there's going to be some movement. There's going to be some impact here, of course. DeMontis Sabonis was the only Zag who was officially traded at the deadline. The Indiana Pacers are going through a rebuild. They traded Karis LeVert to the Cleveland Cavaliers. That really helped signify that, hey, they're not going to be competing anymore. They're no longer really kind of pushing uh, to, to make the Eastern Conference playoffs. So instead, they're going to sell off some of their high-profile assets, acquire younger players. Sabonis so was kind of known to be a player likely to be dealt. There was a lot of teams interested in him. The Boston Celtics were a big-name potential destination for him. The Washington Wizards, who we'll talk about momentarily, were a team that was kind of in on him as well. 
He ended up going to the Sacramento Kings, which was a bit of a surprise. We kind of we'd heard the connection between Sabonis and the Kings, so it wasn't a shock necessarily. But they're not a a particularly good team right now. They're not a bad team necessarily, but they, you know, making a push for a player like Sabonis is tough. They also gave up Tyrese Halliburton, which was a surprising move. I know a lot of Kings fans were rightly somewhat miffed about that. Halliburton was a good young player who was kind of hoping to build a future in Sacramento, but uh, you have to give up good players to get good players. And as you all know, listening to this podcast, DeMontis Simonis is a really, really good player. And I think Sacramento fans are about to, some of them are going to eat their words when they realize, oh, we got we got a really good player back in this trade. Maybe we shouldn't have been so hard on this trade when it happened. Sabonis really endeared himself to the faithful uh, early on. His first game in a Sacramento uniform, he had 22 points, 14 rebounds, and five assists, which may have surprised some of those fans, but certainly did not surprise us. Uh, that is not a atypical line for him in any capacity. 22, 14, and 5 is only slightly more than his averages, uh, as particularly during some of his best stretches of the last couple of seasons. That's a pretty typical stat line for him. I talked about this a lot in an episode a couple weeks ago with Jackson Frank, a former Gonzaga Bulletin editor-in-chief and a NBA writer for a variety of different sites. He wrote a phenomenal piece. I believe he was at Uproxx discussing Sabonis and the misuse that was going on with coach Rick Rick Carlisle and the Pacers. They were poorly utilizing Sabonis' skill set in a way that was hampering him. His numbers were still good this past season in Indiana, but he was not as efficient of a player as he was the previous season under a different regime. So for me, I'm really happy to see Sabonis playing somewhere else. I don't know a ton about Sacramento's coaching and how they're going to utilize him necessarily, but the pairing of Sabonis and De'Aaron Fox should be really, really good. Fox is fantastic. Sabonis is phenomenal with the basketball in his hands. He's good at moving without the ball. He's a good distributor. Distributor, excuse me. He's not a black hole. I think that was kind of the sentiment is like, oh, well, Sabonis is good, but we're just going to give him the ball and get out of his way and let him do his thing. And that's not who DeMontis Sabonis is as a basketball player. He's a facilitator. He's a playmaker. You can utilize him in multiple different ways. If Sacramento figures out a way to use him the best, he could be a monster for them. Not my preferred destination necessarily for Domas, but I'm excited for him to get another opportunity to play. He's back in the Western Conference. He's close to home from where his dad played, of course, in Portland. Uh, Closer to Gonzaga fans, or at least a lot of Gonzaga fans who live in the Bay Area. Uh, I think he's got an opportunity to be a really, really good player for this team, and I'm excited to see how he does for the rest of the year. Next up, no other Zags got traded. I did want to mention Kevin Pangos was relieved of his contract with the Cleveland Cavaliers and signed a monster deal in Moscow with one of the Russian teams over there. Um, His NBA career was just not working out, unfortunately. Cleveland signed him kind of thinking that he'd have an opportunity to play and kind of grow and develop on this rebuilding team. Cleveland ended up being really, really good this year, like shockingly good. Uh, And so he never really carved out a role. When he did play, he wasn't great. Uh, It pains me to say this as a huge Kevin Pankos fan. I think he could have continued to carve it out and potentially played more minutes as the season went on. But the team in, in Moscow offered him $3 million to go back and play there. So he's going to do that. I'm happy for him. This is a great opportunity for him to establish himself or continue to establish himself as one of the best European league players uh, in the in the league currently and potentially a great an all-time great uh, if he plays over there for, for many more seasons, which he's more than capable of doing. 
Next up, the Washington Wizards. Uh, they acquired Kristaps Porzingis in a flurry of deadline deals for the D.C. team. They dealt Montrez Harrell. They dealt Davis Bertans. They dealt Spencer Dinwiddie. Of course, they got back Kristaps Porzingis. They also got back Ish Smith. They got back Vernon Carey uh, from Duke. Uh, and then Bradley Beal is done for the year. So that is a lot of things that are happening for this Washington squad in D.C. The reason we are talking about them is that they employ three Gonzaga alumni, Corey Kispert, Rui Hachimura, and Joel Ayayi. All of this impacts that playing time fairly significantly for those three players. The most, the biggest gainer out of this group, without a doubt, is Corey Kispert. As of now, Kispert is expected to step into a starting role for Washington in part because of the absence of Bradley Beal and, of course, the trade of Spencer Dinwiddie. They are listing Kispert as the starting shooting guard. Corey did not play shooting guard at Gonzaga. He sometimes played the three. He mostly played the four. Playing the shooting guard position in the NBA is a bit out of sorts for him. I think he's going to do fine at it depending on how they choose to utilize him. But he's he's certainly not the kind of creator that Bradley Beal is. So he's going to have to be a different type of player. But still, obviously, he's at a starting spot right now. He's deserved it the way he has played lately. Uh, After having that 20-point explosion at the Madison Square Garden a few months ago, he has been a very, very good NBA player for this team. And I think that they wouldn't have been as willing to deal from some of their depth uh, at the wing positions if they didn't feel confident that he could step into a playing time role. Obviously, Porzingis takes over as one of Gonzaga's, one of Washington's starting bigs. Uh, That is maybe not great news for Rui Hachimura, but again, this team did get rid of Davis Bertans and they got rid of Montrez Harrell, two players who were taking up a lot of minutes at the 4-5 spot. Corey Kispert is also playing a little bit more of a guard role, which takes him out of the running for the small ball four role, which is what Rui plays a lot. Rui's still coming off the bench. Uh, It's his first season as a bench player. He was a starter in his first two years in the NBA. Part of that is that he joined the team late because of some personal reasons. Part of that is just they, they acquired a lot of good, young, talented players. Kyle Kuzma's been awesome for them this season, but... Rui's still going to get a lot of run. I think he actually is a, is a good pair with Porzingis, who's a big man, who's a good outside shooter and a good defensive player. Rui's more of a cutter, more of a uh, mid-range scorer, not a great defensive player. So the pairing of Porzingis and Rui is a good one, and I think will serve this Washington team well. This probably doesn't mean a ton for Joel Iai. He's a two-way contract, doesn't play a lot of minutes. Uh, he has been a- active for them the last few games because they traded a lot of players, and a lot of the players they got back had not come through, had not passed physicals, had not arrived at the arena, so they were they were shorthanded. So that could be a, a boost for Joel in the short term. But I think long term, they got rid of some guards, so perhaps it'll open up a playing time for him should there be any more injuries or ineffectiveness to some of the players they already have on the roster. But I'm not holding my breath that Joel's going to step into a big role uh, the rest of this season, barring some other instance, some other circumstance. Last couple things kind of rapid fire through them. The Grizzlies did not make any deals. Brandon Clark and Killian Tilly still on this roster. Brandon Clark has been playing outstanding basketball lately. He's starting to emerge as a legitimate sixth man of the year candidate, or at least somebody who should be in that conversation. It's been fantastic to see him play well. I'm not surprised Memphis didn't make any deals. They're playing really good basketball right now, and you don't you don't disrupt something that's going really well. Uh, beyond that, the Pistons acquired Marvin Bagley from the Kings. Marvin Bagley is going to play so a lot of minutes at the center position. He's a good young player, probably cuts into Kelly Olynyk's minutes, not necessarily a bad thing for a Detroit team that is trying to rebuild and would rather see what their young players can do, but hopefully Kelly will still have a significant role on this team. 
And finally, the San Antonio Spurs made a couple of trades clearing out front court players on their roster. This was done almost certainly in a cost-cutting move, but a big part of the reason they were comfortable doing this has been the health of Zach Collins. They now have the ability to play Zach Collins more minutes per game because Drew Eubanks isn't there and some of the other front court players that they dealt away are no longer on the roster. Collins has played two games with San Antonio so far. In those two games, 15 points, 14 rebounds, and six assists. Pretty fantastic numbers from him, I think, uh, more than almost any other player in the NBA. Uh, Outside of probably Jalen Suggs, I think Zach Collins is the player I'm most rooting for to have a really, really nice second half of the season. And I think he's primed. He's in a good spot under Coach Popovich in San Antonio without a lot of talent in front of him on this roster. He's in a good spot to make a really nice impact for that team down the stretch. All right, that is going to do it for me. For today and for this week, great game by the Zags on Thursday. Looking forward to an even better one on Saturday. We'll be back with Mailbag Monday next week. All right here on the Locked on Zags podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts and available on YouTube. Finally, thank you again to those of you who have made this show your first listen of the day. Now is a great time to make your second listen of the day the Locked on Bets podcast. Locked on Bets is your daily one-stop shop for all of your sports gambling needs. Locked on Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. All right. Thank you all for listening and go Zags.